Most weeks when you come in, you are getting some paperwork. But uh, today, that's not the case because we're doing something different. In fact, so different we've never done it before. And perhaps we'll never do it again. We'll see. (laughs) But we have concluded a series, the title of which is on the screen. You mean the Bible teaches that. And in that series, we covered a number of uh, topics over uh, an eight-week period. We covered topics like uh, homosexuality. We spent two weeks on what the Bible teaches about that, what the Bible teaches about abortion, uh, uh, capital punishment, evolution, suicide, race, uh, divorce. So we had a number of issues that we, uh, that we dealt with from a biblical perspective. And we set aside this final week as a Q&A time. And as I say, we've never done that before. I encouraged uh, those who had questions about any of those topics to send those to me uh, this week. And a few of you did that. So I'm going to try to address uh, those questions. We did it by having folks write in because we were concerned that folks might be intimidated to ask questions uh, in public. And especially if the question they're asking is of a personal nature and they want an answer to it so that they don't have to say I'm asking for a friend or something like that. They could just send it to me and I'm not going to identify who it is that uh, asked the questions. The first question that uh, that I have uh, to attempt to answer is related to uh, children who uh, die young. Children who die in infancy, children who die at a, at a very young age, what's the destiny of a child who dies uh, at a young age? And I'm assuming, the questioner did not say this, but I'm assuming that question arose because in the two weeks that we did on what the Bible teaches about homosexuality, <clears throat> one of the things that we sought to, to bring out is that Everyone comes into the world from moment one, uh, born as a sinner, conceived as a sinner. And so we come already pre-wired to sin. And the particular ways in which we sin are going to manifest themselves differently depending on our personality, depending on our bent, depending on our environment. And so it is possible to say that someone is born that way when you talk about sin. In fact, it's not only possible to say, you have to say with regard to sin in general, we're born that way. We're born with a tendency to sin. And then the question is then, in what ways do you sin in particular and do I sin in particular? And there are all kinds of varieties of that. So we dealt with, we dealt with that issue trying to show that even if that were the case, even if uh, someday they discovered a gay gene. Now, no one's discovered that. I'm not saying anyone ever will. But let's just for sake of argument say someone did. Uh, Let's say someone discovered uh, an alcoholic gene. Uh, Now, you'll you'll only know you're an alcoholic if you drink. And you only know you have that gene if you drink. That's why I recommend you don't drink. Uh, But Let's suppose someone could identify that. 
Well, all that would mean is that in your particular case, you're going to have a tendency to sin in a particular way. But it doesn't absolve anybody of the guilt of sin. We're all born sinners because we made the case that we are attached to Adam. That's what the Bible teaches. And in our attachment to Adam, in our relationship with Adam and his sin, we are guilty of sin as well. We come into this world, in effect, as little Adams carrying out uh, our nature. And our nature is to sin, and it shows up in all manner of varieties. So I assume that's why this question arose. But whatever the reason, that's the question. Well, then, if everybody comes into the world a sinner, then what about a child who, who dies? And there are a number of lines of argument that I want to bring to you with regard to that. And then I'll give you my conclusion based upon the biblical evidence uh, with regard to the destiny of children who, who die. So the first of those lines of evidence is this. Let's be very clear that everyone is born a sinner and therefore guilty, have inherited guilt from Adam before God. The Bible teaches that. Romans chapter 5 very clearly teaches that. And so that applies to children. That applies to children from uh, their very first moments. And in fact, no child would die if they were not susceptible to the sin of Adam. The wages of sin is death. And so the very reason that a child dies is because they are part of the human race, and the human race is all susceptible to this relationship to Adam and the sin nature that we bring into the world. Psalm number 51 and verse 5, Psalm 51 and verse 5, David, who wrote Psalm 51, says, quote, in sin, my mother conceived me. So David is saying, at the moment of conception, I was a sinner. So that's everybody, and that's from moment one at conception. And in fact, this is one of the reasons that we believe the Bible, there are others, but we one of the reasons that we believe the Bible condemns abortion. In fact, in the lesson that we did in this series on abortion, one of the passages used to condemn abortion was Psalm 51.5, that in sin uh, I was conceived. And the reason for that is, is that the only way you can be conceived as a sinner is if you also have a soul at conception. So the beginning of the soul starts at conception as well, and it's one of the reasons that the taking then of the life in the womb is considered a murder according to the Bible. And so everyone who is born a sinner needs to be born again. Uh, Every person has to be born from above. They have to have a spiritual birth because their physical birth uh, carries with it a sinful soul and a sinful spiritual state. So that's the first thing for us to remember. Everybody's born a sinner and we inherit guilt from Adam before God. Second. The only thing that can save someone, rescue someone, deliver someone from that, the penalty of sin, is the grace of God. It cannot be done by works by any person, by the individual or by individuals on that person's behalf. Now, I bring that up because, as you know, and some of you may come from this sort of background, there are lots of churches, lots of denominations that baptize infants. 
And depending on the denomination and their particular doctrine, uh, the reasons for which they do that vary, but many of them, Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, baptism is part of salvation. And so you are baptized as an infant, and that contributes to and is necessary for your salvation. Now, the Bible does not teach that. Baptism is a work. In the case of an infant, of course, it's a work that's done on the infant's behalf by someone else. But the Bible never teaches that someone else can do, you can't do a work to gain your salvation and no one else can do a work for you to gain your salvation. So some have said it this way, in the Bible, God has no grandchildren. God only has children that are born into his family, adopted into his family, uh, but he has no grandchildren, that is, people who are his children because somebody else is his child, and they do some work on their behalf. Further, the Bible never, ever, not once, in all the baptisms that are recorded in the Bible, none of them are done on infants. Zero. Can't find it. So it's only God's grace that delivers one from sin and the penalty of sin. It cannot be done by works. No kind of work, including baptism, either on the part of the individual doing the work or somebody else doing the work on that individual's behalf. In addition, there's no such thing as a second chance. After someone dies, their destiny is either heaven or hell. There's only two places according to the Bible. And they're, contrary to what some teach, infants nor anybody else who die are going to have an opportunity to receive Christ after death. So there's no such thing in the Bible as a second chance after, after death. All right, so the first thing we have to remember, everybody's born sinful from conception. It's only God's grace, no works on our part or on the part of anyone else on our behalf that can save us from that. We are saved only by Christ's work. And Christ's work is going to be applied to those whom Christ has chosen. Now, if you've been around here for a period of time, you know that. Because there are a number of passages in the Bible that teach that very clearly. And when I come across those passages, I I then teach that. But that's what the, the Bible teaches. God doesn't have to choose anyone for salvation. Am I right about that? And God would be completely just if he condemned all humanity because all humanity is sinful. God doesn't have to choose anyone. In God's grace, he does. And it's only by the grace of God that if you're a child of God right now, it's only by the grace of God that that's the case. It's not because you're better than somebody else. It's not because you're smarter than somebody else. It's not because you know a good deal when you see one and these other people are too stupid to see it. It's because of God's gracious work on your behalf. The Bible teaches that that work goes all the way to before you were born, all the way into eternity past. It's a marvelous truth if you will submit to it But many people have a very hard time doing that, but the Bible clearly teaches that. We are saved by Christ's work only, and Christ's work is only applied to those 
that God chooses. And he doesn't have to choose anybody. All right. So you got those three lines of biblical evidence. And then here's a fourth, and this begins to get to the answer then. And that is that we are saved by grace, but we are damned by works. We're saved only by the grace of God. But damnation in the Bible is always attributed to the sinful works that people do. No one is saved by the work they do. They're only saved by the grace of God apart from works. But people are damned because of the sinful works that they do. And you have passages that state that. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Verses 11 through 15. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 is all about what's called the great white throne of judgment. So this is the judgment for unbelievers. This is the judgment for all of those who come to the end of history and they have not received Christ as Savior. And if you read Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, you see the basis for which unbelievers are condemned. And it's on the basis of their sinful works. It's on the basis of those sinful things that they have done. So we're saved by grace, but we're damned because of, because of sinful works. And in the, case of, in the case of children, they have no opportunity to do those works. A child has no conscious ability to do those works, which gets to then consciousness of offense, consciousness of sin. And you have some passages that deal with that as well. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 35 and 39. Deuteronomy 1, verses 35 and 39. Now you'll remember the story in Deuteronomy that God is preparing his people to move into the land that he had promised them. He gives them instructions throughout the book of Deuteronomy about how they're to behave and uh, what they're to do when they enter the land, the things that they're to avoid so that they don't get caught up in pagan worship and, and, and wander from the Lord. So the Lord gives them those instructions. But prior to that, the Lord had said that every person uh, living during the time, every adult person living during the time of the rebellion against God in the wilderness that all of those people would die before they get to go into the promised land. Do you remember that? And so that's what happened. And there were about uh, 1.2 million adults who died over about a 40-year period. God said, because you didn't go into the promised land at the beginning of, after I released you from Egypt, after you crossed the Red Sea, I told you to go in and take the promised land, but you were afraid to do that. And because you disobeyed me, now you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Numbers chapter 1 and verse 44. Numbers chapter 1 and verse 44 says the reason it's going to be 40 years, it's going to be one year for every day that you doubted me. And remember, they sent spies in to see if it was okay to do this for 40 days. So one year for every day you doubted me, you're going to wander in the wilderness. And they did. And God says further, 
By the time you get to the end of this 40 years and you do enter into the promised land, none of the adults who are alive right now who disobeyed me are going to be alive then. You're all going to die. And that's what happened. But here's what's interesting. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 35 and 39, God exempts the children from this. God exempts the the children so that they are able to go in. So you have grace being what saves us, but works being what damns us. You see that at the end of human history, at the great white throne judgment. You also see that in God's dealings with his people and the punishments he meets out. He makes an exception for children in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 35 and 39. And then, related to all of that then, there's no record then of work and unbelief on the part of uh, the child. There's no opportunity for suppression of truth because they don't have the ability to have that truth. There's no understanding of the impact and the consequences of of their actions. And there are passages for for all of these. And uh, there is no opportunity uh, for them to choose salvation. No opportunity to choose salvation. So based upon all of that, by the grace of God, it is my understanding that all children who die before they have the ability to understand sin and salvation. And whatever that, that age, I don't give an age of accountability because that age would differ depending on the child. But all children who die before they attain the ability to understand sin and its consequences and the salvation that's offered by Christ as the solution to it, that all of them who die before that are by God's grace Elect that God has chosen all of them. Now, so why do I believe they go to heaven? Why do they go to heaven? Because of God's grace. And who goes to heaven and who gets that grace? The people that God has chosen. But given these scriptural lines of evidence, I believe that that category of people are people that God bestows his grace upon and chooses them for heaven because of those limitations. I think the same thing applies to people who uh, are uh, mentally handicapped and are unable to understand sin and understand the offer of salvation. Now, again, God's not obligated to do any of that. But in his grace, given what he says about works damning us, given the exemptions that he makes in other uh, circumstances, then I believe he does that with children and those who are unable mentally to understand sin and understand the offer of salvation, that God chooses them for salvation in his grace, even though he's not obligated to do so. All right. That's question one. What happens to children who die? And then here's another question that was written in. And this one is related to uh, the teaching that we did on divorce. And in the session that we did on divorce a few weeks ago, we noted that the Bible gives two explicit reasons for divorce in the New Testament. Two. And I use the word explicit, and I'll say why in a moment. 
But there are two explicit grounds where someone could get the divorce and they're not sinning in the New Testament. The first one is uh, because their spouse has committed sexual sin. Certainly adultery is the most obvious expression of that. But uh, in the the NIV and many of the English translations translate in Matthew uh, 19, where Jesus says you're not to be divorced, quote, except it be for, and then they translate it marital unfaithfulness. Now, that's a translation of a Greek word, porneia. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we get our word pornography from that. But it's really not just adultery. Porneia is sexual sin. It's a broader term than just adultery. And that's why I made the case, based upon Matthew 19 and the porneia exception, that if you have a spouse who is committed to indulging in pornography, for example, and they are unrepentant of that, then that could be grounds for divorce because of this sexual sin. You have broken the the covenant, the covenant that we will be one flesh, and that you will devote yourself physically to one person for the rest of your life, you have violated that as you indulge in pornography. And so that's that's my view. Now, at the time of the New Testament, you didn't have pornography. You certainly didn't have the Internet. You didn't have the ubiquity of the availability and all of that. But now we do. And that would be another way of committing porneia, sexual sin. So sexual sin, most obviously seen in adultery, is one explicit grounds for divorce in the New Testament. But a second one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15, 1 Corinthians 7, 15, the Bible says that in the case that the Apostle Paul who wrote it was addressing, if you have a believer, a Christian in a home, They're married to an unbeliever. The question that the church in Corinth had was, should they get a divorce? I mean, we know, Paul, that you have taught us that Christians should not marry non-Christians. Christians should only marry Christians. But we, none of us were Christians before you showed up. And you showed up in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, and you preached the gospel, and some of us came to Christ, but some of us didn't. So now we've got mixed households. We've got some of us who are Christians and some of us are not. So should we divorce those non-Christian spouses? And Paul's answer is no. If your unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you, then you live with them. But he says this. But if the unbeliever departs, if the unbeliever does not want to stay, the unbeliever leaves, then the, uh, the believer is not under obligation. That's what Paul says. And so Paul is saying you can get a divorce if you're married to an unbelieving spouse who wants out. And if they leave, then you haven't done anything wrong. And if they leave, they depart. Even if they don't go through the legal process, you can go through the legal process. You're free to do that because they abandoned you. So two explicit reasons for divorce are adultery and abandonment. 
Those are quite clear in the Bible. And that's why I use the word explicit. But then, and this is the question now that was, that was given. The questioner says, if I heard you correctly, you suggested a possible third biblical allowance for divorce. And that is failure to fulfill the duties of the marital covenant. Could you comment on how you and the leadership team would walk through evaluating the subjective nature of these sorts of situations? Adultery and desertion or abandonment are clear and objective. It seems this third allowance could get muddy. That's what the questioner says. And they're right. And they're right that I did suggest that when I taught the lesson on divorce, that you have these two explicit grounds, adultery and abandonment. But there's also some other teaching in the Bible that I believe would give someone warrant for getting a divorce, but more implicit rather than explicit. Now, I used the example when we taught that lesson of someone who is being uh, physically abused. So think about that. If the two explicit grounds in the New Testament are adultery and abandonment, and you don't have either of those, but you have a spouse who is physically abusing the other party, what? And because of this, because of the fact that there are these two explicit grounds, many pastors and many churches have told, usually women who are being abused by their husbands, they have told them, you can't divorce and you have to stay. And women have been killed, literally. And certainly many have been harmed and injured. Now, if that's what God said, even if it had all these difficult consequences, if that's what the totality of the Bible teaches, then that's what we'd have to teach. And we just have to trust God to help us with the consequences. But I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches on the matter, and here's why. In addition to Matthew 19, except it be for Pornea, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15, you have passages like this. Exodus chapter 21, Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11. Exodus 21, 10 and 11. It's in the first part of your Bible, and the law that God gave to his people includes circumstances in which someone could legitimately get a divorce. In the first part of the Bible, the things I've dealt with so far are all just the second part of the Bible, the New Testament. But in the first part, God gives instruction on grounds in which someone could get a, a divorce. And in Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11, one of those grounds is when the husband, in this case, fails to give to the wife food, clothing, and conjugal rights, marital rights. That is, uh, fulfilling their duties in the physical relationship. And it explicitly gives those three things. And if that doesn't happen, you can, you can get a divorce. Says Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 and 11. So that actually expands on what the New Testament is, is more expansive than what the New Testament says. Now, you might think to yourself, rightly, well, okay, that was under the law. That was the first part of the Bible. We come to the New Testament. You know, God's made it more narrow. So we're bound by this more narrow criteria of just 
adultery and abandonment. But I don't think so, and here's why. That second criteria of abandonment, desertion by an unbeliever, is given in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15. But prior to that, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul invokes Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11. And he invokes it by saying that if you fail to have a physical relationship together as a married couple, if you refuse to have a physical relationship with your spouse, then you're depriving, that's the word he uses, defrauding in some translations, depriving in others. And commentators say, and I agree, that he's saying that that's a deprivation, that's a defrauding, because it goes back to Exodus 21 that says you owe things like food and clothing and conjugal rights to your your spouse. And if you fail to fulfill those, then you're failing to fulfill the marriage covenant. So you actually even have a third category there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, going back to Exodus 20, 21. All right. So in Exodus 21, verses 10, 11, you've got three things that are explicitly said. Food, clothing, and conjugal rights. That must be given in a marriage. And if they're not, then a divorce can happen. Okay, we say, all right, fine. We got adultery, we got abandonment, and we got those three things. So now we got five things. But I would just make the case to you that in Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 and 11, it's not just those three things. Now, here's why I would say that. Does anyone think, and I I don't know of anyone who thinks this, but does anyone really think that Moses, who wrote the law of God for God's people, when he said that in the marriage you owe food and clothing and conjugal rights, that if, uh, let's say, a husband refuses to supply housing for his wife, would that be okay? I mean, you've got to supply food, but housing's optional. Because it only says food and clothing. Well, see, when it says food and clothing, it's saying the necessities of life. You're supplying the necessities of life to someone. And if you refuse to do that, you are violating the marriage covenant. Now, one of those things that you're supposed to do as part of the marriage covenant, and the reason that you're supposed to supply things like food and clothing, and I would say as well, shelter. You have the same thing, just as an aside, in First Timothy chapter 6 in the New Testament, where Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So all you should ever want for your needs are food and clothing. But again, Paul's doing the same thing. He's using those as representative of the necessities of life. So, It's my understanding, and more important, not just my understanding, but people smarter than me, understand that the Bible teaches that the marriage covenant involves certain necessities that must be afforded to each party. Those include the necessities of life and things like protection. 
That's part of the reason that a house would be uh, doing your best to, to provide housing for your family and for your spouse, for protection. Now, if you're an abuser, <laughs> you're, you're failing the protection requirement of the marital covenant, are you not? So here's God requiring you to supply things like that, but here you are in this shelter that God is requiring you to supply, reasoning from the lesser to the greater. If food and clothing are required, then certainly shelter is. But here you are in the this domicile, you're in this home, this house that you provided, but in that house you're physically abusing the person that the house is supposed to protect. So, my understanding is that uh, anyone who does that is violating the marriage covenant. And if a woman is being beaten in her home, she needs to get out. And if you have someone who is unrepentant with regard to that, and if she's too afraid to go back, she doesn't have to go back. If she's willing to go back because the person's repentant, okay. But if that person is unrepentant or if the person does that again, they can divorce. That's my understanding of the totality of what the scriptures teach about that. Now, another question related to that is, all right, that's physical abuse. What about emotional abuse? Because that gets more subjective, doesn't it? I mean, physical abuse is uh, sometimes easy to, often easy to document. Uh, but what about emotional abuse? It's much harder to do. So the short answer to that is, my understanding is that someone who is regularly belittling their spouse, is regularly degrading their spouse, is regularly reducing their spouse to a childlike state, and there are people who do this. They domineer over and they emotionally batter someone. Someone who's regularly doing that is failing to protect that person. They're not only failing to protect, they're actually the perpetrator of their non-protection. And that that could be grounds for divorce. The problem is how you prove that. And that was one of the questions the questioner said. How would the leadership team of the church handle handle that? And I'm just one member of an eight-member leadership team here at the church. Uh, so I am not speaking for all the other seven, seven guys. So I want to make that clear. And we have not had to encounter this specific situation as yet. But we may. And if we did, since the question is asked then my view would be that we investigate this as thoroughly as we possibly can. And if something like what I described, a regular demeaning, uh, a regular uh, minimizing the personhood of that person, reducing them to almost a childlike state, if that kind of thing is going on, then that person needs to get out of that house, will pray for a period of time and counsel for a period of time for repentance, And if there's not evidence of repentance, if that person were to get a divorce, I would not be in favor of telling the person who got the divorce, you've sinned. And I would not be in favor of saying you've sinned, and because you've sinned, we're going to bring you before the church for church discipline. And in fact, we're going to remove you from membership in our church because you got a divorce 
based upon this emotional abuse. I would not be comfortable doing that, uh, but I don't speak for the entire leadership team, okay? All right. A couple of other questions more quickly. One is um, on divorce. And this one just says, I understand that the world is sinful, and due to the sinful nature, divorces occur for multiple reasons. What can our Christian community actually do to encourage our state legislature to reverse the trends towards divorce? By this, I actually mean some type of public unity of expression to make a public statement that we support family unity, not breaking up the family dynamic. Do you believe that it's time to make a public stand with our state representatives to change our divorce laws? So that was the question. What can the Christians, what can the church do to try to, at a legal level, try to reverse this trend that's been going on for decades, so-called no-fault divorce? You know, back in the day, you had to show cause, uh, but now it's just irreconcilable differences. And irreconcilable differences can be for anything and so it's really no fault, and you can get a divorce. And if you and if it's not in Michigan, go to Las Vegas, <laughs> and you can get married, you know, right away, and you can get divorced right away in Las Vegas. So uh, it's pretty it's pretty easy to do. But what do we what do we Christians do? Uh, look, before Christians do anything legislatively, Christians first need to make sure we're doing the right things morally. Before we do anything legislatively, we need to be sure that we're doing the right things morally. And what I mean by that then is, before I would be in favor, like at our church, of saying, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna schedule a day, we're gonna go to Lansing, and we're gonna, you know, march outside, or we're gonna have a petition, or any of that kind of stuff. Before I would ever be in favor of anything like that, if I would ever be in favor of it. But before I ever would, I would wanna make sure that we, And then, as much as we can influence other evangelical churches, that we are acting morally before we ever get involved in the legal realm. And my concern right now is that evangelicals have no grounds for telling people how to live their lives. And you know why? Because of the way evangelicals are living their lives. And I'm going to wax political here. I only got five minutes. I'm going to wax political here. I don't have a bulletproof vest, but I probably should. But this, some of you know, you have heard me say, over the last couple of years, my concern about how Christian people, evangelical people, have wedded themselves to the current occupant of the White House, and have overlooked his lifestyle and the things he's represented his entire life. I'm not talking policy right now. I'm talking morality. Because, see, that's what I'm more concerned about. That's what I'm most concerned about. I'm more concerned about that than immigration. I'm more concerned about that than tax rates. I'm more concerned about that because that's what Christians are supposed to represent. 
And I just don't know how Christians could go on any kind of crusade and tell people about divorce. When you've got so many Christian people who are saying, that's my guy. Three times divorced. Lifelong womanizer, to put it mildly. Bragging about physical encounters with women that are really of an assault-like nature. How are we going to go to Lansing or Washington and say, we want America to get right with God? How's anybody going to listen to that? And, and I'm just, so I'm just saying to you, brothers and sisters, that's my concern. It's been my concern for these two years. It continues to be my concern that the church is losing its moral voice and its moral authority because of how enthusiastically it's joining itself to someone who diametrically opposes in their life to this day the stuff that we claim to stand for. I don't hear any gunshots. And I've got one minute left for the last question, which is, I don't think, related to anything we talked about in the series, but since i got two minutes. This person asks, say your daughter lives with a man for five years and they have two kids. They want to come and visit for a few days. Do you invite them in your home and let them sleep together? So they've already been together for five years. They've already got a couple of kids. It's your daughter and her significant other. You know that it's sin for people to cohabitate without marriage. And so what do you do? That's the question. And my answer is you do not. You do not let that happen in your your home. That you kindly uh, remind the person of what you believe. You remind the person of how much you love them, how much you love these grandkids, and you're delighted to be able to see all of them. But if you come for the visit, you're not going to be able to stay in the same bed in our home and use our home as a vehicle for something God says you can't do. So they may not want to come then. They may get mad at you. They may call you all kinds of names. But that's what I would, that's the way I would handle it. Okay? All right. Those are all the questions that I had. Um, Please come back next week. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you that we could have this time to think about these matters and practical application of them. I thank you for brothers and sisters who took what we talked about over these uh, last several weeks and then asked good questions, uh, implications of those truths and how they work out. Uh, in in practical living. So, Lord, we ask you to grant us wisdom in the application of the truth of your word. And, Lord, we ask you as well uh, to not only grant us uh, wisdom, but grant us unity. That is, not uniformity, not that we agree on all applications of every issue. We do not, nor do we have to. But help us to have unity around the truth of your word, around the gospel, around our love for one another, and around the mission that you've given us to accomplish. We ask you, Lord, to go with us now as we seek to serve you in the places that you've assigned to us. Grant us safety. We ask you, bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.